Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi everyone, so we have something different for you this week, uh, Steve you're here and we sat down last Friday in our respective homes with Finn Dwyer from the Irish History Podcast and recorded a podcast that we we're calling The Self-Isolating and for the duration of time that this COVID-19 uh, lockdown type scenario is on, we're going to be doing a couple of these type of things every Friday night live on the Irish History Podcast youtube channel and we'll release these as podcasts as well so hope you enjoy it join us this friday and if you've got anything you want us to discuss um feel free to get in contact through social media with either ourselves or irish history podcast enjoy are we live yep perfect hi everyone welcome to the <laughs> <laughs> i was like wow finn you pulled that out of nowhere sorry I'm about it. like i'm not gonna go back now go on little perfect. shirt uh Listen, everyone, sorry for the wait there, the old technical glitches. Um, welcome to a crossover podcast between uh, Irish History Podcast with Finn Dwyer and Snowcast with myself, DJ Walsh, and Owen Tab. Uh, lads, welcome to the virtual pub. The self-isolating. The self-isolating, yeah. Yeah, man, technology is a, is a crazy, crazy thing, isn't it? Mad. I was just uh, saying there before when we thought we were live there about 10 minutes ago that... Uh, few friends of mine uh, started using this house party app um, and like uh, just on Paddy's Day there, we were all just like there, drinking away, there were six of us kind of on one screen podcast, just drinking away, please. similar to this now but yes, yeah, crazy times, everyone has to kind of move like that. Yeah, it's mad alright isn't it? I mean um, I suppose we're here, we, like we were we were supposed to meet up for a couple of drinks this weekend and it fell through unfortunately but uh, we're here anyway uh, Skyping and broadcasting to a couple of listeners around the world. Um, Finn? Start off with yourself. What are you drinking tonight, Pat? I am going pretty uh, traditional here. I have got a Guinness, draft Guinness in a can. Oh. Draft Guinness in the can. Yeah. I, I'll be honest. To be honest, uh, the cans were just in the shed. I didn't even, 
with all the uh, uh, no one wanting to go down to the shops and all, I just said, you know what, there's Guinness there, it's grand, I'll drink that. Hey, nothing, nothing bad to be said about that. For sure. Brilliant. Owen, what are you drinking yourself? Um, I'm on Kildare Brewing Company, uh, Van City West Coast IPA, um, 6.5% IPA. That's uh, it's pretty nice. Uh, bit of hoppy, kind of citrusy. Uh, yeah, it's nice. It's very drinkable, um, but would probably blow the head off me now if I, if I have a few more. But yeah, yeah I'm enjoying it so far. I had a can of that there before we came on, and it was beautiful. But uh, I moved on to the Kildare Brewing Company Electric Juice IPA. Uh, it's a bit more sessionable at 5.5%. Very tasty, very fruity, actually. Um, goes down a treat. We actually stumbled across the Kildare Brewing Company by accident there the other day. And um, we bought some cans online, and they dropped them, delivered them to the door on. Uh, yeah, look, I think... In the time that it is now at the moment, businesses are just moving all over the place uh, and just having to pivot and, and get whatever sales they can. So Kildare Brewing Company put up a post on Twitter and it was shared by uh, Port Leash Pub Club, actually. Um, and uh, basically it just said, look, DM us if you're in the area, you can pick up. Um, so they're based in Salins, County Kildare. And said, uh, if you're in the lo local to the area, uh, you can pick them up or we'll deliver them if it's not like taking the piss. So we were like, Grant, uh, I was like, look, I'm on my way home. What time are, what time are you close at? Um, they said, where are you living? I was like, Kilcullen, which is actually a fair bit away from Salins. But fair play to Barry, man. Just came along, dropped him over, sent a picture on to DJ. DJ then was like, I need a case of that. <laughs> Straight away. Find the case the next day. And, well, yeah, uh, it's so cool. Like, I, I think it's amazing. Like, all businesses now, even like places that are like Michelin star restaurants in Waterford, uh, are now like just pivoting. And like, the head chef is like making bread and selling bread at the door, like, just, just you know, just to pass time and get some sales in, like, you know, Michelin wolf in the door. Mission Sorry, I, I, I'm like just uh, not saying very much here at the moment, folks, but I'm actually just posting the link to Twitter, getting more people in, and uh, uh, just give me two seconds. As people can see at home, we are, as Owen was saying, though, it is that thing that like people are having to adapt all the time. And it's like you were saying, DJ, that thing we were supposed to do this, ideally in a pub, but then you're just left with nowhere off, uh, options so i'm sure there's like that michelin star restaurant that's like they're having panic attacks in the kitchen but no one can see them we're doing it live on uh on youtube yeah but that's the beauty of modern technology like we we can't make it to the pub so we but we can still have a drink together like you know i mean fair enough you can't we can't clink our glasses like we like to do on the snowcast but you know we can still have a drink and enjoy each other's company virtually which is absolutely brilliant you know yeah I, um, think that, I think that is actually though it's indicative of a much bigger thing and i guess we're going to talk a bit about this though about how this you know because i guess i'm reticent a bit to talk about this um about historical analogies you know because i think things have changed so much in terms of like i suppose we talk about different historical pandemics but it's even something like that that we're talking about now that we can sit here and do this over the internet that makes things like social isolation possible. Whereas even like, forget like people talk about the 1918 pandemic or the Black Death. This wasn't possible even 10 years ago. Like think about 10 years ago, 
Skype wasn't half as good as it was. People didn't have uh, broadband in their houses. So if you go back another century, you're into a whole other, um, a, a um, whole other situation. And I think it kind of makes me a bit optimistic, actually, about what we're facing. That like we are the most prepared generation ever to deal with this. Yeah, we definitely can cope a lot better. Like even just in terms of like our communication channels to one another, and like even though you're saying that like you, you don't want to go down to the shop to get things, but like most shops are just offering delivery now simply because they have to offer delivery in order to survive. Like there is a a much uh, I don't know much bigger emphasis to, on businesses to survive. Um, so like yeah, it's it, it's definitely we definitely are the most prepared uh, that we could be, I suppose. Um, and it's just getting better and better, I suppose. I think there is, maybe to go on the doom and gloom side of it, and I, I don't think it is, and I think we have to be, I think it is worth being cognizant of that there's a lot of people almost like scaremongering and almost wanting this to be like an apocalyptic film. But there are things, I think, that maybe do put us at a bit of a disadvantage, and some of that is the interconnectedness of the world, that we're far more reliant on further away places. And I guess you guys, in terms of, I can probably talk maybe a bit about, like, how this affects medicine, that, like, we're dependent on things to come from much further afield than, say, say in 19... Well, like, obviously, in terms of, if you look at the Black Death, the... the um, the level of medicine was way, way lower than it is today. But I just think that we're living this interconnected world that's so dependent on like all these um, supply chains. And even beyond that, like in terms of, um, in terms of um, technology and the reliance on huge amounts, of, on huge systems to operate, that I would wonder, will this undermine that preparedness? I think, I think something that... I mean, something that puts that in perspective to me is like today is the 100th anniversary of the killing of Tomás McCurtain in Cork, the Lord Mayor of Cork. Um, and on one of your previous podcasts, mm -hmm. you talked about the other Lord Mayor of Cork who died in that time frame, Terence McSweeney. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, so I went to the same school that both Tomás McCurtain and Terence McSweeney went to. And so we would have been taught about that a lot. Um, and they died um, just a couple of years after the Spanish flu. So communications are very much in line with the time of the Spanish flu uh, pandemic. And when you look at uh, Tomas McCartan was murdered and it took a couple of days for that news to circulate around the world. And there was like, we were showing newspaper clippings from like Australia, say four or five days later where it was being announced that it just happened. We're in the middle of a, a pandemic now and we're getting daily updates of the total numbers of, of infected people total numbers of recovered people and the total numbers of people who have unfortunately succumbed to the infection every single day by region around the world. So if you think about it, it took a couple of days to travel about a, a like high level murder um, to travel around the world a hundred years ago. Whereas now we are literally getting like basically uh, time in like, like data as it comes online is being spread around the world at an incredible rate. I think you're right in that it gives us certain advantages with medicine. We can adapt and uh, take medicinal approaches, public health approaches based on that. Basically, overnight, you can shut down a country if you really want to. But the opposite then is that when you're getting all the information at once, it's very easy to read too much into it, get inside your own head and basically 
create a dark cloud over the entire world overnight when you see the scale at which things are escalating in certain parts of the world. So it's a very good point to say that, like, where we've never been better equipped to deal with a pandemic from a, a neighbor, uh, from from being able to like mobilize around the world, but also we've never we've never had so much access to information to drive ourselves mad either, you know. I know. I think it's as well. It's like how reliable is that information as well that's going around? Like it's very hard to control it. Like if you're talking about like that news of of McCurtain and stuff being passed around, that's been passed probably from a journalist, you know, from a newspaper to a, a more, to maybe a UK newspaper onto a Aussie newspaper or whatever. Like, you know, it's going through these like uh, telegram passages. Whereas now, like anybody can say anything online. And it just, it just amplifies. Like we have, like we had that, that kind of scaremongering thing about um, anti-inflammatories and COVID-19 as to just not take them because there's, um, and there was another thing as well with ACE inhibitors, which which are blood pressure medication that like, that just shouldn't be uh, taking them because there's a increased incidence of, of or, or there's, you're more susceptible to uh, contracting COVID-19 or you're not gonna handle the disease as well um, if you take these medications. So like, there's been like, the, the, subsequently then like the the medical agencies have to come out then and just completely disregard it and say there is no evidence against this thing you know so it's yeah, like scare, scaremongering as well like you know it's crazy that stuff though isn't i was actually thinking about this that stuff isn't new or certainly and it might be interesting actually given that you have the expertise in terms of what's going on now just even compared to something like the black death obviously that took place in 1348 or that's when the big pandemic is but there is interest in parallels, like, so I suppose something that we're really experiencing at the moment is um, this issue of conspiracies that Owen is talking about there, or misinformation. And actually, like, in the 14th century, there's a couple of similar things where at the time, even in the context of the time, it's conspiracy theories. It's a bit before the Black Death, but in 1321 to about 1324, this had took place in France, but there was a huge conspiracy theory that claimed that um, lepers, Jews, and Arabs, I think, had come together to poison the wells of France. There was in the early 1320s there was big out there was big outbreaks of um, uh, various diseases, and this conspiracy theory did the rounds, particularly in France, a bit in Spain as well. But thousands of people were killed because of this, and it really shaped the narrative of that. And I just when I was hearing some of the, you know, like the, the wackier conspiracy theories, I actually don't even want to go into them to give them any kind of um, light of day because they're just no. really unhelpful. But they're not new, and I think some of it does reflect, like what we're going through at the moment is not that different to what people in the 14th century went through. When you face something that you can't understand. So like what we're going through now, you know, well, you guys have probably a better understanding but say me, I don't. I'm not good at biology. I'm not good at science, and I, I struggle to to uh, to to understand the full thing. And it can be very disempowering. And then I guess when you hear a conspiracy theory that says, "Oh, it's this group, that group," or "This is why it's happening," it can, on some level, be a comfort, you know. And I think that's a continuum throughout history that you can find this blaming of one group or another. And I think part of it is obviously it's relying on older stereotypes but it's um it's um a continuum through history you know 
Yeah, but I think I think as well, it's a lot easier to retract those conspiracy theories and prove them wrong nowadays. Like, uh, as one yeah. said, the appropriate health parties can just come out, do an online publication, and that's it. Uh, it's it's almost like the myth is busted. Whereas, like in the 14th century, once a conspiracy theory is out there, how do you disprove it? You know, it's it's so it's pretty much impossible. Um, but I think when you look at right. And we, we asked people for a question for tonight and stuff like that. And a few people asked questions along the line of like pandemics and uh, previous pandemics bar COVID-19. But like, I think what you have to take into account when you're talking about any pandemic is like, what was society like at the time as well? Like what means yeah, it have? No, I think so, yeah. yeah. That's the key parameter. Um, like we're looking at something here that I, I think if a virus of this complexity and this transmissibility, if that's even a word, it probably isn't. Uh, <laughs> I, I think like um, if if this was around in the 14th century, uh, what, what Black Death was about a, a huge mortality rate, wasn't it? Yeah, Black Death. This is a big debate among historians. Don't worry, I'm not going to go into it. But you're talking somewhere between 30 percent in some areas, possibly up to 70 percent in some Italian cities, like the yeah. really densely populated cities in. Actually, weirdly, in northern Italy, it was one of the worst yeah, affected, affected places. Part like the city, the Florence, Berkeley, actually, in uh, the city of Milan, was they kept it down really low, and it was ruled by uh, these guys called the Visconti brothers. And the Visconti brothers adopted this very brutal form of self-isolation, where if uh, the plague broke out in your house, they bricked up the house with the living and the dead in it, and just oh, essentially killed. But it was really effective, um, and they were the only ones. <laughs> It was, you know, it's horrific to say, but it was yeah. a way of containing the disease. Um, I think what we're doing now is actually, because we understand how it works, we can actually uh, implement social isolation without killing people. Whereas in the 14th century, they had absolutely no idea. Like some people thought it passed on eyesight because it's just so contagious. Now, I think there's yeah. huge differences. Like you'd obviously understand like I suppose the Black Death was a bacteria and uh, COVID-19 is a virus. And it seems, it's very hard to know which spreads faster. The, the Black Death took about four years to get from the Black Sea to Ireland. Well, no, three years, say. But obviously yep. we've got these read like, the, the rapid... The is, yeah, sorry, Finn. The world, the world is hyper-connected now, though. You know, like, you can get a flight to pretty much anywhere in the world within 24 hours now, whereas, like, Back then, transport, travel, like the people being the vectors of a lot of these things or rodents or whatever it is, like they did, unless they're birds, like avian creatures, the, the, the pathway for them to get from to an island like Ireland is completely different than it was then. But I think as well, something that you said there with, um, I suppose, you were talking about, um, well, I, the point I was going to originally make was basically that if a virus of this complexity and this transmissibility um, was around in the 14th century, like you were talking about somewhere between 30% and 70% mortality rate, we're talking about 0.7% in the countries that have gotten a real grip on this, versus, you know, I, I haven't seen the figures from Italy today, I, I gather they're not great, and um, not of 7.4% mortality rate, I believe, anyway. So while it is a comparatively low mortality rate relative to the black debt at the same time too given the arsenal that we have at our disposal and the amount of information we have right now like this is a serious serious virus 
Um, I suppose not to be all doom and gloom, you know, like the, the black death would have absolutely scarred society for, we, like we were doing a sound check last night and I was saying decades, you were telling me it was centuries before uh, society occurred. I, I think, again, it's the doom and gloom thing, but no matter what happens, we were talking about this just, I don't know, maybe before you came on DJ, but me and Ronan think we're talking about this, just this idea that society won't go back uh, even what we're doing now, if no one died and we had to experience what we're going to experience, that is going to fundamentally change society. And just because it changes a couple of different things in terms of our outlook and perception of the world. And actually, I think there will be parallels with the Black Death. And I would... Do you think, uh, sorry, do you think people become germaphobes or anything after this? Like that, Yeah, like... Like I think, I think the like you know the social distancing and and you know um, prevention of contacts and stuff uh, like you know obviously is exactly what we need. But you'd wonder like afterwards, will people become like hyper aware of that and like you yeah. know forms of greetings or whatever might change? Uh, I was to, like, that will people ever go back to it? I know because they were saying as well in Italy. Now uh, this is a little anecdotal, but they were saying that the rate of transmission in Italy was quite high because of how they greet each other, where it's like two kisses on the cheek, um, you know, and they're they're much more close contact people, and that's why you know it would have spread a lot uh, a lot quicker as well, you know. So it's it's just interesting to you know what, you know will that part of Italian society change hereafter, you know? Um, I think as well when you talk about that, like. If this escalates, the worst case scenario here, um, does the Western society dispense of the handshake after this? Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I think so ridiculous. No, no, not the handshake. <laughs> the handshake. Imagine if you're in a pub at Christmas and you were told in six months' time people won't shake hands anymore. It just won't be an acceptable societal norm. But no. it's, it is a reality. It is a possibility, you know. I think the yeah. most... Yeah, I, I think, well, I don't know, if past, like the only pandemic that really totally transformed society that I'm aware of is the Black Death. Obviously, there's others, there's the 1918 flu, but the one that we can really see this huge tale in terms of how it changes society. And what it, one of the big things that people argue is actually the perception of death and how people relate to death and society becoming obsessed with death. Now, obviously, that takes a certain death toll for that to happen and hopefully we're not going to experience anything like that and I think it's probably unlikely or it also people would argue that it heightens individualism or individuality that you know this idea of the sense of self becomes even more important because you're talking about um the um <laughs> just sorry I accidentally uh, read a comment I need to turn off the the, the messenger there it's uh, <laughs> but um <laughs> <laughs> But it can heighten, I think these, this could heighten uh, individualism in society, particularly that people are starting to work at home and, you know, the, the more time people spend on, on, like, it will heighten this sense of individuality that's already rampant in society. Um, one thing that we talked about that I think is actually really interesting in this is if we're trying to compare how this may relate to past pandemics. I think something that we really have, and it's worth people bearing in mind, this issue of living standards that we talked about in terms of healthcare today and the healthy population. Um, like 
the last pandemic is um, obviously the 1918, then you had the 1830s pandemic of cholera or epidemic of cholera, and then you go back to the Black Death. But those populations were absolutely, um, like in terms of healthcare, the majority of people had a really poor standard of living and weren't like the average life expectancy was quite low and it was quite low for a good reason because healthcare was so um, appalling. And I think that would hopefully come to pass in this, that the, the general population are just much healthier. Yeah, and I think as well, just like medications and treatment options, like although at the moment, so I think as of speaking now, and there are 39 clinical trials uh, for COVID-19 um, in operation, whether it being active or recruiting, or some, are, I think some are even completed at the moment. Um, there is like so there are some treatment options out there, but it's just like trying to get that information around to everyone as well. Um, there's like there was one study in France as well where they're using this drug, um, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, um, which kind of disrupts how the virus gets into your cells um, through like pH and stuff like that. But um, like all 20 participants, uh, if there's any doctors listening, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think all participants were cleared of the virus, you know, after the five day course of it. So, you know, there is like kind of crazy stuff like already in, in operation for it. It's just, you know, like all these clinical trials have to be set up, which is a huge body of work in itself. But like, it's, I think it's just, it's, it's crazy how everybody in the world is now focused on this one thing like same again with like, you know, as we were saying about like connectivity and stuff earlier on, like um, IBM Watson, which is one of the, like one of these supercomputers in the world has like focused all its strengths to um, try and figure targets for COVID-19. And, and like, I think over a 24 hour period has, you know, found 72 targets or something like that. What do you mean when uh, you say targets, what do you mean? Like so, potential drugs um, that they could target, you know, that they could target. So either like preventing it getting into the cell, preventing it replicating in the body, uh, just you know, killing it before it gets to the cell. All you know, different types of targets for it. Like, but yeah, so, it's, I think it's um, like so you know, an, example, an example. Sorry, one. The example of a target film would be like if there's a specific protein on the yeah. surface of the virus that oh. isn't on cells. So all of a sudden, you're saying, right, if we can develop an antibody to target this protein um, and we in, uh, infuse this antibody into the, the body and um, then it'll identify this protein and kill those cells only so it'll just target the vir viral cells rather than healthy cells and um, I suppose this, this is where we talked with doom and gloom earlier about COVID-19 and, and, and all that but this is where it gets a bit positive I suppose and this is where modern society is in a much much better place to adapt, I was going to say to cope, but I think when you look at what's happening in Italy and what has happened in China, cope would probably be the wrong word, but to adapt um, quite quickly, like we're four months into having this virus in the world, in humans, and like straight away, as Owen said, they've identified targets, um, like hydroxychloroquine is one of them, like that's a, that's a readily available drug that's used worldwide for treatment of arthritis and lupus, and um, so it, hydroxychloroquine is probably in every community pharmacy in in europe i'd say you know so that's really really positive but they've, they've identified as well like people who end up in respiratory failure and um, part of what's 
there's two main things that drive the respiratory failure as far as I'm aware and it's the real intense inflammatory response that COVID-19 causes that isn't as intense in like say standard influenza which is why so many people are ending up in ICU and on ventilators compared to like the seasonal flu um, and also this um, fever induced organ failure so by giving people like simple drugs like paracetamol to keep their temperature regulated when they have symptoms not to take it like if you're asymptomatic but then they've found like drugs that are used to treat pro-inflammatory conditions like arthritis so one is an antibody called tocilizumab and that identifies a cytokine so a pro-inflammatory agent so when you get an influx of inflammatory um chemicals into an area for example the lungs you get a big mass accumulation of fluid and it triggers on it upregulates uh, a lot more of these inflammatory cells come in so this tocilizumab basically just takes those inflammatory agents out and it reduces the burden on the lungs which means that there's less requirement for oxygen ventilation which actually while it won't actually cure the virus it'll reduce the demand for icu beds ventilators and that will actually yeah like even talking about that stuff I, like i find that fascinating because you're talking about that kind of stuff there i think that is the real like just you've been talking about what is potentially going on in terms of how we're going to approach this if you compare that to any previous pandemic of any kind there's no comparison at all like in 1918 you have you don't even you know you've got a huge problem that you've got a population recovering after the first world war so you've got demobilization going on where these armies are being wound down but these are all people who've been living in the trenches for years and years and years so that the the their health is appalling they went into that war most of them working class people having grown up in horrific slums in in some of the biggest cities in Europe at the time, so these people aren't now. Obviously, they're not all, but like you know, that is a huge problem. Um, you have that underlying problem, and then just a general lack of understanding of medicine. Like even, I know you guys would have a much better sense of this. But when did like uh, uh, what was it, the miasmatic theory of medicine end? Like that didn't that persist in some areas into the twentieth century? Like you know, this idea that. Uh, you know, the, of the humours and things like that. Like, they're essentially a medieval idea of medicine. Like, we, the, the big breakthrough, in many ways, I guess is what I'm saying, has been the 20th century. So that we have put this, like, huge gulf between us. And that, I did mention this at the start, in that, like, I got a lot of emails with, from people going, oh, kind of do an episode on the 1918 pandemic or do an episode on comparing this in history. And I am a bit slow to do it because I think one of the big problems that we face at the moment, and I think a big problem for our society, is is an issue of misinformation and people panicking on the basis of misinformation. And like someone going, oh, that, that, the Irish History Podcast said that this is going to be worse than the Black Death. You know, and like, but I think that's what people can take from these things instead of going, I think some of the stuff that we're talking about here is, for, and for me, I think there's a really big question of how useful history is in this. I think there are, maybe what we were talking about 10, 20 minutes ago, like this idea of what does a human experience when they go through something like this? I'm not sure how much that ever changes. So we can look at the Black Death and go, afterwards, people were obsessed with death and it starts to show itself up in art and things like that. Fair enough. Afterwards, people have a rising that their sense of what they want in life is rising because their, their mortality has been made so pre present in their lives. What, what the threat that this pandemic poses to us compared to previous ones, 
I'm not sure there's that history as much to offer us there. It's just too different. It's like we're talking about a world where, like what we're talking about there, where living standards are appalling. People, these people are really ill. Well, not ill is not the word, but malnourished. They're actually malnourished. And if you yeah. want to talk about, say, the Black Death, their generation that lived through, every generation of the later medieval period lived through a famine. That's part and parcel of life. So they've got these, like, inbuilt flaws, for want of a better term. Uh, do, do you think, has like, throughout history, has there ever been a, a period of, like, say, a pandemic creating a period of creativity afterwards? Because I think this is what's going to happen here now with this. Like, you see a lot of, I think, like, 2FM or have a some sort of like creativity challenge out at the moment and things like that and you know people are bored at home or wanting to put a positive light on things you know i'm just wondering is there any point in history that you know uh, came after like this uh, like a pandemic or a you know a, a, a big world event like that you know yeah i think the ones that people point to are just ones of like absolute like what follows the black death is just total chaos. Um, yeah. In the long term, yes, there is this change in society where you could start arguing. There's some. Um, there, someone is actually asking a really good question there. Do you imagine there will be a baby boom in nine months' time or so? I would imagine so. Um, <laughs> there is actually another aspect to that that we might get onto. That's creative, of, I suppose. <laughs> creative, yeah. But um, <laughs> I, I think if you look back at previous pandemics, what tends to follow them is chaos. Um, if you get large yeah. numbers of the population. And I think, I kind of disagree with Joan. I think initially we're in what, week one of of um, a lockdown. Yeah. Three weeks' time, if there's hundreds of people dying every day, I don't know where that's going to take us. I'm just not sure we'll be in. Like, I think I was talking to my sister today and she was asking me, going, oh, have there been an increase in listeners in the podcast? And I was saying, Oh, uh, there's not a huge, I haven't noticed a huge change. And I was kind of saying that I still think that at the moment people are going through the, what they would do on Christmas holidays kind of thing. You know, they're watching everything there is to watch on Netflix. And maybe in a couple of weeks time, you might then start to see different behaviors and maybe more people tune into podcasts who previously wouldn't have. But I think we're in that stage where people haven't really, uh, I, I think behaviors will change, but I'm not sure creativity is going to be um, one of them yeah, yeah actually just what that person has raised there sorry dj just to, to do this it was something i was thinking of um very famously one of the great books in the black death or the deals of the black death is boccaccio's uh decameron and he wrote the first chapter of that is about he he witnessed lived through and experienced the black death and, you know he's got these four reactions to it one is that you get really pious and you pray one is that you go off to the countryside and basically do what we're doing like hunger down and um, <laughs> But then there was just other people who just partied it up and uh, like had sex and ate all the food there was to have and just went, oh, I'm on the way out and I'm going to go out in style. And I, mm. I have been wondering, will we get that reaction? I don't mean like people in the temple bar piss it up. Isn't that like, will you get that? You know, like there is a thing where human beings, and I think it's really deeply hard-coded into us and you can see this in history and it happens loads of times, um, that if we sense an existential threat to our existence, uh, that people tend to appropriate or whatever. And I think it's probably some 
desperate attempt to pass on your genes that's happening deep part of your brain and I would wonder is that happening in Italy did it happen in China like did people start coupling up together just because they felt this sense that like this is getting out of control and this could be my last chance I know it is it is funny because there is such a level of selflessness and solidarity at the moment um you know and everyone is feeding into that and everyone is you know you know, doing so well and promoting it, and, you know, everyone's working extra hours or, you know, you know, really kind of, well, how long can that last really, you know, before people just get fed up of it and selfishness comes in then? Yeah, um, no, I think that's... Yeah, on a, just a cultural context, how, how is that going to work? I was actually thinking just on that issue, I was thinking of uh, what would make an, an interesting podcast would be... Um, an emotional history of this and I was kind of thinking of making this of like all the emotions you go through during this you know like you start off with like and just because what you're touching on their own where are we going to be in five weeks time and I think maybe history can maybe help us understand this one of the problems with the 1918 pandemic is just the way it transpires um it's not the same like we had this extraordinary level of knowledge. Like we knew this was coming. We knew essentially the day it hit here. And now we can project, like, I don't know, I suppose we can't, you can answer that better. Like, but the, the trajectory of the disease in terms of like flattening the curve and all that kind of stuff. Whereas I'm not so sure that in 1918, 1919, people were so aware. So I don't know, will that affect our reactions too, you know? And I think during the plague, it was, when I say the plague, I mean the Black Death, um, it was totally different, I think, because society was literally falling apart and the death rate was um, quite spectacular. And I think there is one other different thing, sorry, maybe this would be something you might be interested in talking about, is just, we also have sanitised death in a way that previous societies didn't. So when people, a lot of people who are going to die from this will die behind closed doors. Whereas in previous societies, it was your family member who was in the house where you were living and they died in front of you and that was a very traumatising thing yeah I, I, I suppose <laughs> that was like god he's full of shit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean you are but not at that particular point um, I, that ties back into one of the questions that was actually asked on YouTube earlier about life expectancy and does a, does a pandemic like this cause outliers and stats based on life expectancy throughout history I think it's a really good question because I think what we're seeing now in the Irish healthcare system today is a rapid adjustment to an anticipation of a wave of a need for everyone to move to critical um, emergency medicine. And I think it, people don't actually realise what that means for society that we knew it six weeks ago. Like People are going to stop getting their cancer treatments uh they're going to be on hold people are going to not get surgeries that they've needed and and that's going to affect quality of life and life expectancy is a knock-on effect there are going to be hospitals around the country that and, and again this isn't to be alarmist but this is just what will happen if we stay on a bad trajectory bad trajectory when you say those curves like if we move towards the worst case scenario like people aren't going to get cardiac interventions if they have heart attacks um like people they will try their best, the healthcare system will try its best to cope, but if it goes beyond saturation, 
you're talking about certain hospitals in Italy being seven, eight hundred bed hospitals where every single bed is treated like an intensive care bed now, and they are purely COVID-19 hospitals. So I don't think people realize that the mortality rate from COVID-19 worldwide is not just going to be who succumbed to infection with the virus. It's also going to be who didn't get this surgery, who didn't get this medical intervention because the healthcare system was saturated with this pandemic. So like, we can see it coming down the line. We are better equipped to deal with it. But like, as you were saying about 1918, but at the same time too, like make no mistake about it. Like every specter of society will feel a hit from this in some way. And I think it will change our relationship with debt. It might change our relationship with life and everything, but like, Society is going to change. That there be no bones about it. Like, um, yeah. I, think I, I think demand will increase. Like what people yeah. expect. Like we've spent so long over the last couple of years being told what isn't possible, what isn't possible, what isn't possible, and then literally in the space of two weeks, they've gone and done it all. Like you know, I can't interfere in the rental market for tenancies. They've interfered. You know, <laughs> land or mortgage moratoriums, all these things. Um, like, I was just amazed. I live very close to Northern Park in Kenya, and that's going to be one of the test uh, areas. You know, like, there's a big, massive testing where you can drive through testing. And they announced it last night. The army were there this morning doing it. And it's like, in normal way of doing things in this country, it'd be like, they'd announce it yesterday, and then, like, two years later, a lad would turn up with a shovel or, or measuring tape and start, like, standing around and I, I think though this is going to change our expectation and that is actually there's definitely historical examples of that of where events like this speed up what we uh our expectation what we want and our willingness to not accept no for an answer yeah but the, wi- the willingness to not accept it is due to the fact that you can be affected by it you know not that like you know, say like people who are living in tenements or people who are work living in uh, direct provision, whatever. Like, there's no move to to do. This is probably a bit over politicized now, but like, like there's no move to to intervene in those situations because it's not really going to affect you, like the government. But everybody can get this virus, like you know. So I think that's what I think that's one of the main reasons why everybody there's just a worldwide focus on this because it can just affect everyone and if it's not going to like even if it doesn't affect you like there's someone in your family who is an elderly relative or whatever who it possibly could kill you know so yeah. I think I think I think that's a good point to on because like to say something like I if if you came across me in the street you'd say right there's a, a young homeless homeless man yeah there's, there's, there's a scruffy <laughs> bastard but there's a young healthy fella who you think is fine but actually i'm, I'm immunocompromised so i i would be compromised by this virus but you wouldn't think it to look at me um, and i think there's a great one a great comment here on the youtube uh, do you reckon after COVID-19? on the youtube dj <laughs> <laughs> he's an old fella as well <laughs> I, I keep saying i'm young but like, i think <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for laughing. Uh, do, you, do you reckon that after COVID nineteen there will be a pre-examination, a re-examination of public health policy? To be one hundred percent honest with you, I think after COVID nineteen settles down, I don't think we're going to have to reevaluate public health. I'm going to have to reevaluate society. I think what the last few weeks has shown is society disproportionately puts value on certain sectors over others, 
and all of a sudden you realize how like fundamentally crucial the the food supply sector is re food retail sector is healthcare sector is in the last 18 months in ireland you've had uh, nurses go on strike you've had doctors like crying out for a new a gps crying out for a new contract you have these people who feel like society critically undervalues them and you know what the shit has hit the fan and they're the ones keeping society going so i i think not just public health i think we're going to have to seriously reevaluate where the priorities lie in in every aspect of society and if there's one thing i would hope to gain from covid19 happening and it's a it's a bit of a bittersweet way to look at it and i don't really like framing things in this way but i'd love to see a bit of a, a social revolution occur on the back of all this where we can turn around and say right we need to value the fundamental citizens of the, of the nation and of communities and an awful lot more than we have done over the last i don't know maybe 40 years in ireland i think that's going to happen i i hope it. i just think that, that that there's a series of things being brought in how do you turn around for example there you know they've the, upped the dole by 50 percent. i think so it's gone up from 200 to 300 quid right how do you turn yeah. around and say to people or sorry no the the disability benefit was is now 300 and something how do you turn around to people and go oh yeah now we say it take you can go back to surviving on 200 or like you're able to solve the this issue by all these drastic measures but you won't solve homelessness and i think i guess what i'm saying is it could lead to rising demands but that's your really good question that's just come in uh, on the youtube dj there's a question <laughs> on youtube <laughs> um, because <laughs> I was wondering about this, I was actually chatting to my mom about this actually. Do you really believe anything? Nope, sorry, the one on religion. So, sorry, Ben Park, that was a good question too. But considering the impact on previous pandemics, how might this pandemic alter current Irish politics and religiosity? I think the issue of religion is interesting. I was just wondering, will people go back to the church? Like, where. I thought it was funny as well. I thought it was funny as well that we were saying. Um, uh, there's no indoor gatherings more than 100 people. <laughs> so you'd hardly get 100 people in a church nowadays, would you? <laughs> well, some parts of uh, the country you probably would, but... I probably would, yeah. Majority places you wouldn't. Look, I'm coming at it from an atheist who was, who was brought up in a fairly religious house. Like, we went to Mass every week and all that. I'm um, getting a point there, one sec. Do walk away. You talk um, away, talk away, obviously. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think... I, there, there were naturally there. I think there's people who are who who classify themselves as religious, but not Protestant, who might engage in it a bit more. I'm not too sure if if it's going to be, for want of a better phrase, a resurrection of the church. Uh, I don't know will Irish society move back to being a like I know in a census we're a predominantly Catholic country, but practically we're not. I don't know will we move that way. I th I think people will look far more towards um. Uh, social democratic values rather than religious values personally i think you see like you see the tories today like bringing in mad social democratic uh reforms the likes of which scandinavia would be proud of like you know i i think uh like to, to look at that question how might it alter irish politics and re religion religiosity um I, I, think, I think there's going to be a mass i think i would imagine we're going to migrate towards um parties that are aligned like the social democrats 
and I think you could get a big influx towards that way of thinking societally. I don't necessarily think we're going to, and I use this word intentionally, regress back towards religiosity as the question was phrased. I agree. I don't know. I don't know what you think, Owen. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I like. I think it's a bit idealistic. I don't. I don't really see much changing, to be honest. Um, like, I think people could go back. Like to religion. The, I think people could go back to religion. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think as well, even on the the social front, like I know there's a big upheaval now, but I, I actually think that people will see this as a wartime effort. And then what we'll replace afterwards, like, we'll just be back to normal. Like, once everything, once the economy starts going again, you know, there'll probably be, there'll probably be recession-like, um, what was the word, austerity measures put in place um, post this. And people will, it'll just be the exact same all over again. Maybe that's me being pessimistic, but, like, that's how I see it rolling along again. There's a, there's a good point, though, but I, and, and the thing is, like, as Irish people, we tend to be quite passive. So Irish society tends to just regress back towards like what we've always been told. Like we're we're a relatively young state. I mean, the Republic of Ireland wasn't a state the last time the pandemic hit. So when Spanish flu was out, there was no Republic of Ireland. So it is essentially the first pandemic that the Irish state has had to face. Um, so in terms of what history can teach us, I think as a state, we don't have any historical evidence for what's going to occur next. But I think I just think though, like 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 pandemic is like you know like that recession hit everyone very hard there in two thousand and eight, two thousand nine. Like uh, like uh, like in terms of yes, debts this time, but like there's you know financial burden the last time, and I think the response to the state is just going to be the same, really. Do you know? Yeah, but then again, I think if you look at say the social democratic values that countries like Finland have at the moment. And you look up at the way they value society more than an economy. So basically the way they look at it is the economy serves the society, whereas we have for the last, uh, for my lifespan, society has served the economy. It's been, it's been a- almost, you know, the inverse. And I just think if we, if we don't have this short five minute memory, as some people are commenting here and saying, and we actually, can come out the other side and decide we need to have a shift in society, then it will be that kind of viewpoint of, right, the economy has to serve society. I would hope that's the move that we'd make on um, at the end of this pandemic, personally. What do you reckon, Finn? I think it is going to change. Actually, I think there's things in society definitely going to change on the back of this. I just, say, I, I just I, don't think the viewpoint towards it, like the government is going to change. I think maybe, yes, maybe societally not, or culturally, but I, just, I, I honestly just don't yeah, think but it's, yeah, you it's, mean, I don't think those things necessarily are mutually exclusive because I think like people can have rising demands and you can see that in the past. And it's not just pandemics where you can look for analogies to this in the past. I've, I've, I've thought a lot about this about like in terms of what and like, the analogy of a war I don't know if that one is a really good one, or if you look, I don't know if looking back to previous conflicts is a, is a good place. But you know where society is tested under extreme circumstances. I don't know if you look at if you heard like Leo Varadkar's speech there the other night was uh, yeah, but like near, but, but, Churchillian, like what? It was like Churchillian in its nature, like yeah. But I, I, what I'm saying is that I don't think we'll get the same out, outcomes as a war, but I do think it transforms society because I think it transforms the way we look at the world. 
and we can still it that doesn't necessarily mean that the political makeup will radically transform and you'll get a whole new political alignment but what you may get is that people just ordinary people all across the state will have different uh, expectations so if someone says like it will be just unacceptable not to increase social welfare or it may be unacceptable to drive social welfare back because or it okay a good example of this it'll be really really difficult to um cut the wages of nurses and doctors after this i think yeah yeah uh, yeah, yeah like yeah, that's people will just yeah. be like or like i think there will be and hopefully really like this to come out of this is that retail workers are viewed in a new light in this country of as people who really went out there and took huge risks. Anyone who goes down to a supermarket sees this, of these people who are like, they didn't sign up for this. No one ever said that when you went to work in Aldi or Dunn's or Tesco's or wherever, that you would have to put, maybe not your life on the line, but who, the people you're living with, their lives on the line, and they're doing it. And I think hopefully that will come out of this is that people will go, yeah, do you know what? If they go on strike for better pay, they probably deserve it. And like, cause the other thing is, it's like all those queues that we see outside supermarkets, that's a huge amount of money going into the people who own these supermarkets. So they should start coughing up. And I think, um, but, I, but sorry, my point is though, is the expectations, they're just two examples of how expectations will change. And I think on the back of this, and it's so hard to predict because we have yet to go through if all the predictions are right, we're, we have yet to go through the really dark part of this. And I think yeah. that's the point where things are really, the experience and the memory is going to be fused in that experience of those. And it's what we take out of that. But if any previous pandemics, like say particularly the Black Death, or even if you look at the later uh, waves of the plague that go on for 300 years, people emerge quite differently from these. Like, it, it remains this thing they always, always remember and people refer back to it. And I think, I think that we probably are, our lives will be defined before and after COVID. I think that would probably be, it would become, the, unless, who knows what's coming down the line after this. But if there isn't something else huge, I think there will be, um, our lives are going to be defined by this event and it'll be, I think it will be on that level in how we understand if it is as bad as what's going on in Italy. I don't think people in Italy will ever forget what's happened there. It'll be the new um, before Christ, was it? Before coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> new calendar. Um, new calendar. Yeah. Absolutely. Year zero. I think, I, think, I think you make a super point about the supermarket film because I think if you look at what was what was really growing in Ireland was the gig gig economy and zero contract hours and stuff like this, and we the government who constantly put out a line that there was full employment in Ireland, full employment in Ireland, full employment in Ireland. What we've been shown is that that full employment was built on a foundation of sand, and that it took absolutely nothing to crash the employment figures. Like what are we talking about? Three hundred fifty thousand people probably unemployed in the space of a week, and add to that. The housing crisis, which you know was nothing but escalating, all of a sudden, when you put a free, when you put a lockdown on uh, Airbnbs, etc., you get a massive, massive 
increase. I think it was, there was sixty four percent increase in daft in the month of March in available properties in Dublin alone. Yeah. So I do actually. Think- Actually, on that point, Finn, can I can we ask, just ask you there, like, I, I, like how have you been affected? Because like you have obviously the podcast and stuff, but like you have tours and stuff like that as well. Like so, yeah, you know. I was supposed to be doing a lot of tours over um, Paddy's weekend actually, and obviously all that was gone. And like my health does be up and down of currencies, so I was just like before, even before it was cancelled, I was like, I'm just not going there because it just sounds like chaos. Um. The podcast is growing as is, like, you know, because obviously I can do that from home. There is a problem in terms of research and getting to documents and things like that. Hopefully, I'll be able to... I've got a good bit of content lined up, but, yeah, if it goes on for a couple of months, it could be, like, the history of my house. (laughs) How's it it affecting me? Um, Well, I suppose we're actually quite in a fortunate position um, that we're both um, public healthcare workers uh, working in a hospital. Um, And so, like, for us, uh, like, whether we we get COVID-19 or not, like, we will be paid. So uh, normally, I suppose, at this point, we'd be promoting the Patreon and all this shit for... For us, but I suppose from for the next foreseeable future, we'd actually just rather people support local businesses and stuff like that than throwing money at us. Like, like we're actually the fortunate ones now, um, and the ones that probably should be con- contributing to society. Um, and then I suppose just on a day-to-day level as well, um, working in the hospital, um, it's kind of ramping up a bit, um, in terms of just the. In fairness to the contingency measures that are being put in place um, by the hospital and in fairness to the HSC, like a lot of people just not the HSC a lot of the time, but they're being very, very proactive with what they're doing in terms of like um, segregating beds and putting plans in place to have COVID-19 positive, COVID, COVID-19 negative hospitals. Um, and yeah, like as DJ was saying earlier on there that like, you know, to avoid the incidences of um, preventing like cancer treatments going ahead or preventing like cardiac interventions or anything like that, that, you know, you have these COVID-19 negative hospitals in place where the most vulnerable of our society can still be treated. Um, but yeah, it's it's so like it's just so different. Like er, like everything is just so focused on this now at the one time. Um, uh, but at the same time, though, it's it's good kind of seeing all the evidence that's coming along, like that we were kind of speaking about earlier on in terms of treatments and things like that. So um, and as well, like when, if you're kind of looking at China and things like that. Um, and you know how they're coming out of it now. It's been their second or third day in a row now with no new um, local cases. So like the, a lot of their restrictions are being taken off. So you know there is light at the end of the tunnel. Not to be, I think a, a lot of this podcast has been doom and gloom. So um, it is good to see that you know. And again, I suppose that's another thing to to talk about with like the the communication channels. You know the globalization of communication channels between us all that like we are actually able to get evidence from them and see what China and Italy have done wrong and how to react on that and you know and put these processes in place so hopefully that we're able to manage our healthcare system much better and you know achieve that kind of 
slower curve. You know, it, it like ultimately what that curve means is that like like that like that peak curve was like 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 basically China and Italy hit this huge peak curve where everybody's getting infected at the one time and they're ramping up and they hit a level which is above the capacity of all the of, of all the hospitals in Italy or China to actually cope with it. And you know, you had China building was it fourteen hospitals over like several weekends. Yeah, yeah. Two weeks, yeah. Uh, in order to just cope with it. Um like like there's no way we're going to be, we'd be able to do that so we have to kind of flatten that curve They're, they were basically building capacity in order to hit that higher curve they were building and building and building and building to hit that curve whereas like we like we don't have the capacity actually able to do that so we have to flatten the curve and like hit you know make sure that the amount of cases that we're hitting is being spread out over a longer period of time so it means that we might have a longer period than the than they have had uh, to deal with this, but it means also that there'll be a lower mortality rate, hopefully, with it. I think I, I think that the key point here is that, in fairness, and I, I, I suppose myself and Owen work in, in University Hospital Waterford, for anyone who doesn't know, and I will knock the private hospital sector every chance I get, but I have to say, in fairness to Whitfield, the private hospital in Waterford, which is only out the road from the public hospital, like they've stepped up to the plate massively and, and like as Owen has said, have offered to use their facilities as basically a cocoon for the vulnerable people who need to ensure they're going to a COVID-free facility, which is, is in line with the national guidelines. But I think as well, um, what's important here is talk about the... the um, the, the, I just seen the comment that you're laughing at. Him. <laughs> the more points, the more chat. Trust me, Ben, <laughs> that is true. Um, yeah. I, I think what we're looking at here as well is uh, Owen has mentioned that we're both um, healthcare professionals, so so we specialise in cancer care. So that's that's our background, and um, that's what we know. But what's brilliant with modern society is like as I've alluded to earlier, I'm immunocompromised. So um, if I get this infection and it hits me hard, um, I end up um, more than likely in ICU with a 50-50 chance of survival at 30 years of age. You know, that's, that's not great, you know. So so in fairness to the HSE, not only with that, but um, be, I'm in a position where I can continue my work, but work from home, and I can still provide a bit of value to um, Owen, we, we both work together, I can still provide a bit of value to own in the hospital from home where I can go on my laptop and make sure that our documentation is up to date and I can review and the, the updated guidelines and keep keep people informed um, both from home so that I'm not put my going to a hospital that is infect that has confirmed cases and potential cross contamination uh, to put me in in great danger. Because like that that's that's the balance like that that's the key balance here like ultimately people are going to get infected like we we are going because of children because of the temple bar fiasco if we want to call it that like we are coming into the highest hopefully if people socially isolate appropriately and self-isolate when needed we are hopefully coming into the two weeks where the country is most contagious and if we can like pincer it here then it's a downward trajectory after that and we will be able to cope with that but in fairness the hse and the private healthcare institutions have worked together on this. And they had to, because we have half the number of beds, ICU beds in the country per capita than the EU average. 
So we're at a serious disadvantage from the start. But in fairness, the HSC have got out ahead of it um, to the most part. Um, in terms of public health, we probably should be locked down already. But look, um, if people just cop on, like we'll be fine. Um, yeah. It's out there. It, it is out there. And we all just need to make sure that we, we absolutely minimise our own personal risk. And to the healthcare providers that are going into work every day, like Owen, like fair play to them. Like today was my last day in the hospital for the next couple of weeks. But there are people going in there every day, like, um, and, and you, the, I think the original point was, how is it affecting us personally? Like, I, like I was supposed to get married next week. My fiance lives in the house with me naturally. And we had to suspend the wedding. But the thing is, like, she's a nurse. We talk about nurses in the country and, and how like every time one of our public representatives goes on telly and they're praising nurses and doctors the nurses were previously on strike like we're actually putting in contingency measures for right if Neve gets redeployed in a high risk area we need to like divide our house then so like that's how it's affecting people that's the correct way that people should be looking at it is like self-isolation but like even self-isolation from your loved ones if you're putting people at risk so uh, for a lot of people it won't affect them too much personally but if you don't take the appropriate measures like you could genuinely have serious consequences for other people like, sorry to take it on a bit of a downturn but i suppose <laughs> should, should should we um start to wrap up by asking some of the, the more light-hearted questions from earlier on if you want I, to say more well, i was going to say is we could wrap up by saying that we'll answer the first question that appears in the chat Oh, nice. Great. Fingers on the buzzers. For the first question that appears in the chat, we all have to answer it. Hey. The first question. I actually haven't seen loads of these questions. What? Tony Groves, who's he? He's a god <laughs> uh, uh, No one's answered a question. No one's asking a question. I think it's time to... Uh, is it time to wrap up? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Perfect. So, thanks to everyone for tuning in. Yeah, for sure. Uh, great chats. I'm sure hopefully we'll be doing it again soon. Yeah. Absolutely. Stay um, safe. Wash your hands. <laughs> stay safe and wash your hands. I want you to realize I've been touching my face for the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, actually, I spotted you throughout the whole thing. I was like, oh my God, this idiot. <laughs> I just want to say that like, a, a common part in words that I use with people is stay away from yourself. But I am not saying that for the next few weeks. Like, <laughs> do not stay away from yourself. <laughs> you need it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. Shout out to the finish there. on. Good luck. Good night. Shout out to the room for right. the camera. Slaan. Slaan. Bye. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.